Hi there, and welcome to a special edition of Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos, and I'm coming to you live tonight from the foyer of the House of Commons up here in the West Block on Parliament Hill. It's the first day for Parliament of 2023, and politicians certainly wasted no time getting down to it and at each other. Have a listen. The well-connected insiders at McKenzie. How much should the Prime Minister give them? How much? Conservatives continue to push cuts and austerity uh, and uh, not being there for Canadians. This company did money, did work of little or no value according to his own public servants. How much did Canadians have to pay for that? Canadians are struggling right now. Not everybody is doing badly. His friends at McKenzie are rolling in cash. The Conservative leader stands up, crosses his arms, throws up his hands and says everything is broken. And that's just a taste of it. Tonight on Power Play, you'll hear from all three political parties. And of course, our front bench is standing by to weigh and to get us started. I'm joined now live by the government's House Leader, Mark Holland. Mr. Holland, good to have you here with us. Good to be here, Vashi. Thank you very much for making the time. Uh, in those clips off the top of question period, we heard the leader of the Conservatives continually ask uh, the Prime Minister and, and sort of make the assertion that uh, you know, you're out of touch with Canadians and you're helping out your friends like through the McKinsey contracts. I know you're going to refute that claim, but on the question that the leader asked many times, how much is the total value of those contracts? I did not hear a clear answer. Can you tell Canadians listening tonight, is it more than the $101 million that, that is publicly out there right now? Well, look, I think first of all, you have to step back and take a look. Uh, successive governments have used contracting to amplify the work that public service does uh, and to make sure that uh, they're able to deal with uh, the strains that come uh, at different moments in time where that workload goes beyond the capacity of the public service to deal with it. Um, and uh, what has been said is that there's going to be an opportunity to look into um, those contracts, both, uh, and that's happening at committee now uh, with this company that has been, uh, you know, not only with our government for previously. In terms of the exact dollar amount, I'm not, it's not my file, so I'm not, I couldn't give you an immediate answer on that beyond uh, the framework that is you gave. Is it possible that it is open? Is it, is it possible, rather, that it is more than what has been reported so far, though? Well, I, I'm not a person know. who would be knowledgeable enough to be able to give On that your answer. assertion that um, this is something that all governments do, where McKinsey specifically is concerned, I think it's fair to point out to the government that Radio Canada investigated and found that under the previous government it was worth $2.2 million, and now we're at about $101 million for you, your government. On the wider issue, though, of outsourcing, in 2015, when the Liberals were running, you pledged to do a spending review, and in that reduce the amount of outsourcing that happened. Instead, it's climbed by 74% under your tenure. Is there a problem? Well, I think what what we have to be able to look at is the uh, the outcomes that government is able to generate uh, and what we're able to do in terms of serving Canadians. And there's no question that we have a government that has taken on a very uh, ambitious agenda of being able to expand uh, the ability to help Canadians through very difficult times. Uh, and so with respect to, I'm not the minister with respect to files, so I can't answer that specific question, but I can speak to the this overall... Is, this is across all departments, though. No, no, exactly. I mean, the and that's what is happening... No, no. That, so this is what I'm speaking to more broadly, which is that as we respond as an example within the pandemic or as we uh, respond um, with uh, uh, with programs and services to expand the impact 
of how we're going to be able to help Canadians, uh, the public service has to be able to respond. And you use the public service to the best of its ability and where it doesn't have the ability to, to, uh, to fill in gaps, either because of the amount of additional workload that is present or because an urgent uh, situation hits like what we have with the pandemic. There are instances where outsourcing needs to occur in order to be able to make the, meet the demands of serving Canadians. And, and I take that point, but it's a big jump, right? So when you say in 2015, we want to reduce it and then it jumps by 74% at the same time as the public service has grown. Is there something like, is it, is it, do you understand how it would be hard for Canadians to, to, to square that circle? Sure. And I think that what, what we've committed to doing is taking a look at uh, what those expenditures were and to measure that against the delivery of service. But there's a couple of things that are really important to note. One is that we, uh, we said from the beginning uh, that we needed to make sure that uh, we were there for Canadians and that we expanded the impact of the federal government uh, in Canadians' lives. And that has had a number of, of huge impacts. But Take poverty as an example. And, and I'm not taking away from those impacts, but why does expanding the role of government include expanding the role of private outsourcing. Well, and I think we have to take a look at what what was being done and what was the most efficacious way to do that. Canada has uh, the, the uh, you know, among uh, all world uh, leaders uh, in, uh, you know, in looking at other democracies across the world has the highest standards when it comes to contracting, both in terms of the efficacy of those contracts and also the controls that are placed on them and how, both in how they're awarded and also the sort of performance metrics that come thereafter. And so what we want to make sure is there was good value for money. Uh, at the end of the day, in, in every budget, we outline exactly what we're going to deliver for Canadians in terms of programs and services and helping them uh, in their lives. And uh, we have to make sure that the federal public service is equipped to be able to deal with that. And the question that you're asking, which is a fair one, is, is there good value for money? And was this the most, uh, ex- uh, the most appropriate and, and uh, cost-effective uh, and most uh, effective way of going about uh, delivering those services? And that's, and that's something that we are in a constant uh, environment of review of. And we've said with respect to this that through the Treasury Board, we're going to go and look deeper uh, because uh, we I want to make that sure that, that we answer that, yeah. we understand that with clarity. I, my guess is that Canadians are hoping that question is answered before you endeavor to, to make those contracts. Oh. But, but I, I have to move on to one other subject because I, sure. I know your, your time is limited. Uh, and that is around the emergency debate that Mr. Singh is asking for, in particular around what he calls the growing role of the private sector in some provinces into uh, public health care. Uh, he you know, you can debate the merits of that, but he does make a point around how your government has changed its position. Uh, when you were running against Aaron O'Toole, who proposed the exact same thing Doug Ford is proposing, your government came out with very specific criticisms. The prime minister specifically said it was wading into health care, that you were willing to, that he was willing to look at uh, holding back uh, money through the Canada health transfer because of that. And now he calls it innovation. Why the flip-flop? Well, I think let's start by saying we are 100% committed to publicly funded and available uh, and publicly available health care and that it's it's essential in this country that when you walk into a hospital the first question that you're that the first and only question you're asked is how do we make you better not the size of your wallet uh, that is a core value for Canadians and we've also said working with the provinces uh, that we need a health accord that yes is going to give them more money but needs to be tied to specific metrics to demonstrate that we've been improving outcomes for Canadians and so that's the process we've been moving through now provinces within their jurisdiction are going to have to make decisions about how they 
they deliver that health care. But we have been uh, absolutely clear that the health care that's delivered must be public in nature and must not undermine public health care. And that's something that we have not wavered from. But respectfully, Mr. Holland, that doesn't answer the question of why your position has changed. When Aaron O'Toole proposed what Doug Ford is proposing, the prime minister said he said he supports choice in health care, which means letting the wealthiest pay to jump ahead in line. Now, a year and a half later, he calls it innovation. That's not the same position. Well, I don't, I, I mean, you're comparing uh, the position of Mr. O'Toole to what's happening. Um, the, pro- I think the proposals being made was for more private delivery using public money. That's I the understand same. that. I understand that. But uh, what I'm saying is we are in negotiations right now with the provinces and have been clear in those negotiations the primacy of, of public health care. And we've also been clear uh, then and now that if provinces move away from the public delivery of health care, there will be consequences for that, and there are mechanisms, uh, including the potential, uh, the potential of withholding funds um, that are available to us. So th- there has been no change in that whatsoever. Uh, we obviously will continue to monitor the decisions that are made at a provincial level. Those are an evolution. Those are not concrete. There's a lot of discussions that are going on between our level of government and the provinces. But what I just stated is a core and an, an immovable value for us. Okay, Mr. Holland, I'll leave it there. I'm out of time. Thanks for your time. Appreciate Thanks it. So much. Good Appreciate to have you with us. That's Mark Holland, the government's House leader. We have have a lot more coming up on this special edition of Power Play. You heard me mention to Mr. Holland, there's the front bench. They'll be standing by to weigh in. Former Cabinet Minister Miriam Monsep, Melanie Paradis, Kathleen Monk, and Laura Stone. We will also hear from Mr. Singh about his proposal for an emergency debate. He wanted that on the role of the private sector in the public health system. He was denied that opportunity. And he's also meeting with the Prime Minister to specify, my understanding is, what exactly he'd like to see the Prime Minister do around that issue that I was just discussing with Mr. Holland. So we'll keep track of that. That interview is coming up in a moment. Right now, though, I want to bring in the Conservatives' House Leader, Andrew Scheer, who joins me live. Mr. Scheer, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me Thank you very much for making the time. Uh, The argument that I I started off my interview with Mr. Holland asking him about was the one Mr. Polyev was making towards uh, the Prime Minister off the top of question period around the McKinsey contracts. What I garnered from those questions was the allegation or the accusation that basically the Liberals were helping people out at the expense of helping out Canadians or or regular Canadians. What would your government do other than cutting the carbon tax to help people who are struggling with, if you were government, struggling with the cost of living? Well, it's important to realize why people are struggling with increased costs. After eight years of Justin Trudeau, inflation is at record highs. We know that that inflation is caused by inflationary deficits. When the government of Canada has to go and borrow more money than there is in the economic system, the Bank of Canada pays for that by printing new money, creating new cash, more dollars chasing fewer goods leads to inflation. So what the Liberals like to say is that, oh, it all went to the pandemic. We know it didn't. Over 40% of what the government was spending didn't go to help Canadians get through the pandemic. And the McKinsey contract is a great example of that. Over $15 billion in contracts to high-priced consultants, including McKinsey, which, of course, has a very cozy relationship with the Liberal government. So our point is that the higher prices in the grocery stores are directly linked to this increased spending that had nothing to do with getting Canadians through the pandemic. Okay, let's piece apart a couple of things. First of all, my reading of the PBO was about 30% of the pandemic spending was was not temporary in nature. But second of all, where inflation is concerned, your your party's primary argument has been, as you just laid out, that this isn't something that happened due to exogenous factors, that it's the government that did it all. I looked into that because I I knew that you were going to say it, and I know that your party has been saying it. And the the most specific analysis I could find came from Scotiabank, economists at Scotiabank, which said that the... Uh, that the specifically government spending led us to estimate that government transfers account for 0.45 percentage points of the rise in inflation we have observed since the end of 2019. Inflation sits at 
6.3% right now. So half a percent is due to what the government is doing. That's according to Scotiabank. That's not my analysis. That's not the Liberals' analysis. So, so that's one person's analysis. I look to the current governor of the Bank of Canada, the man responsible for creating all that money in the first place. And he said inflation is increasingly a domestic phenomenon. I mean, I would put it to you, Vash, like, do you, do you think inflation is kind of like the weather that, you know, it just kind of happens? Like you can look at the Farmer's Almanac in April and say, oh, if it rains on April 15th, we're going to have inflation in October. It's a monetary other... phenomenon. When the Bank of Canada creates $400 billion out of thin air, uses that money to buy government bonds for the government to spend and prices start to go up, it is directly linked to those deficits. There is definitely a link, but that's not to say other factors didn't contribute to the issues Canadians are facing right now because it's not just Canadians facing them. Lots of other countries, all the other countries in the G7 endured inflation. All because their central banks did the exact same thing. When central banks, when the Bank of Canada decides to engage in the government's fiscal policy, which which previously the Bank of Canada had traditionally not done. Usually the Bank of Canada says, look, our, our job, our sole job is to keep inflation low. The Bank of Canada made a decision not to do that. It made a decision to help Justin Trudeau pay for his spending. So are you saying the and Fed in the U.S. was, was helping Joe Biden? Wait, wait, was every, trying to help Joe Biden? They're all if, political? If every government around the world did the same thing, it doesn't excuse the fact that Justin Trudeau is responsible for the inflation here today. Lots of central banks did exactly what the, the, the Canadian central bank did. That doesn't mean it had good outcomes. They're suffering but from the same problems that we are. could it also mean that the intention was not to make life harder for Canadians, but to help out an economy that had bottomed out due to the pandemic? There, there were people like Pierre Polyev who were warning at the time that when Justin Trudeau was going out and saying, we're going to go into debt so that you don't have to. Pierre was warning Canadians, saying there will be a cost to this. The, the, the idea that the government could spend all that money for free and not have any impact, no, it's just, it just so stretches Who, who were they not supposed to so, spend the money on? Well, great question. $15 billion to high-priced consultants. The government spent $15 billion on outside consultants while at the same time increasing the size of the public service. So they're hiring more people working for the government while they're paying for more contracts to consultants. At the same time, lots of companies got the wage subsidy, for uh, for example. Lots of profitable company uh, companies that turned around, turned around and used that wage subsidy to help pay for bonuses for their executives. Uh, lots of examples of the CERB going to people who shouldn't have qualified for it. We know, we, we know, we supported helping Canadians through the pandemic, not giving it to people who uh, didn't deserve it or didn't need it, or companies that were already profitable and used it to pay for big, fat bonuses. So these are the types of examples that we can say, okay, look, of course, unprecedented pandemic, but right. lots of spending. And I believe the number is actually 40% of the spending had nothing to do with the pandemic. So that's a huge chunk of that inflation. So our message to Canadians is, A, we can help reduce the cost of living by reducing the cost of government, and B, we can avoid what we, we can uh, reverse the course that the Trudeau Liberals are going on by making the cost of living even worse by tripling the carbon tax. The government is going to make the carbon tax, carbon tax go even higher. So home heating, any good that has to be transported will all get more expensive as well. So that's our message to help deal with the cost of living. So putting aside though the carbon tax for a second, if 300 plus billion dollars of pandemic spending bumped up inflation by half a percentage point by Scotiabank's estimate. Are you going to cut $300 billion of spending to reduce it by half a percent? Well, again, I, I, I don't accept one person's uh, estimate. I, I go it's by... I, bank. It's one of the I, big banks in I this go, country. But, but the current governor of the Bank of Canada says inflation is a domestic phenomenon. Bill Morneau, former finance minister, also said that the increased spending had a huge impact on inflation. I interviewed him. I made that so, comment to me. He said we probably shouldn't have spent so much, but... 
at the time, you had to get the money out of the door soon, or what the effect on the economy there could be even worse. Lots of examples of conservatives warning the government to put in the types of safeguards to make sure that, yes, get help out while Canadians need it, but not to have that help abused. For example, wage subsidy, uh, companies that receive the wage subsidy that turned around and paid their executives but, massive but, bonuses. But I remember covering that, and I don't remember the Conservatives at the time saying, you know what, don't give this money to companies, don't give this money to people who have lost their jobs, because we need to make sure that, like, the forms are more completed. Or, like, no, no, like, it, is, it, is it kind uh, of revisionist uh, history? No, no, Vashi, if you go back and you look at that, those exchanges, we were demanding that Parliament be recalled to provide that kind of oversight. The Liberals chose to, 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 to ram things through the House of Commons without the proper debate and diligence. They had support from the NDP and the Bloc Quebecois. The Conservative Party, were, we were warning exactly this. We were saying, if you rush these types of massive billion-dollar spending through without the proper due diligence, you will have the unintended consequences of increased spending going to people who are not, uh, who didn't need it during the, the pandemic, and that would have dire consequences. Now Canadians are suffering through the worst inflation crisis in 40 years. It, it stretches credibility to say it has nothing to do with government spending. But it's not nothing. I'm not presenting, I'm presenting the opinion that it has nothing. I'm just saying the outside analysis that I can find that isn't political in nature does not say it's to the level well, that you're attributing I should it. say, of course a bank, of course a bank is going to love the Bank of Canada gobbling up those government bonds. Bank shares in this country have skyrocketed. They're making record profits. The, the, the fact of the matter is Canadians are paying higher costs at the grocery store on their home heating, on their fuel bill, because the purchasing power of the Canadian dollar has been diminished as the government has flooded the economy with brand new cash not backed up so by I have a simple question. I have 30 seconds by, left. Uh, I mean, they're going to cut me right off. I have a simple question for you. How much would the Conservatives cut from spending in order to reduce inflation then? Well, what we're starting with, our first proposal is to say that the government should do what's called pay-as-you-go, that if every dollar of new spending should be accompanied by a dollar of reduced spending. We've identified $15 billion going to uh, high-priced consultants. That's an easy place to start. Uh, the Arrive Can app, that uh, balloon costs. Uh, we've got lots of examples of things that we could eliminate Those that wasteful spending without, without affecting the quality of services that Canadians receive. Okay, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thanks for your time, Mr. Shearer. Appreciate it. We have lots more to come this evening on a special edition of Power Play. Up next, the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh. Stay with us. I'm not surprised the Conservatives support this approach. They believe in for-profit private health care. But I am surprised with the Prime Minister. Why the flip-flop? We stand for a public health system that fully abides by the Canada Health Act. Uh, this is something that matters to most Canadians, certainly matters to us, uh, and we will continue to defend. Welcome back to a special edition of Power Play, live from the foyer of the House of Commons. What you were listening to there was some back and forth over the role of the private sector in the public health care system. That's something that NDP leader Jagmeet Singh wanted an emergency debate over that request was denied, but Jagmeet Singh spoke to me just before he went into a meeting with the Prime Minister about the issue. Have a listen. Hi, Mr. Singh. Good to see you and good to have you with us on the program tonight. Good to be here. Um, look, privately delivered, publicly funded health care does exist and has existed for a while in this country. Why are you coming out so strongly against it right now? Is it political? Is it because, because Doug Ford's proposing it? It's about the direction we're headed in. And where I want us to go as a country is to invest more in the public health care. But really, it's also coming from the people on the ground who are telling us the problem that they're up against is the number of health care workers. 
and investing in a private for-profit delivery is not going to fix the fundamental problem. And so I really want to put all of our resources towards dealing with the problem because I'm afraid when I think about what that means for kids in our country, for aging population, for families that can't get the care they need, that this uh, proposal is not going to fix that problem keeps me up at night. But what's the difference between what Doug Ford's proposing and the 8 million hours of publicly funded but privately delivered care that Quebec is going towards? What's the difference? That, that one is a, is a political foe of yours and the other isn't? Well, my concern is about uh, for-profit private delivery everywhere in our country. So you're worried about what Quebec's doing too? Absolutely. I'm worried about it happening anywhere in the country and I'm particularly worried about the crisis that we're in right now and the decisions we make right now with our public dollars at the federal level. If we want to solve this crisis, the priority has to be on hiring more workers. That's really what it comes down to. And if we're spending any money on private delivery, it threatens to take away those workers from the public sector and just make the problem even worse. But how do you know that that's the case? Because what the, let's say the government in Ontario is proposing is we have this massive surgical backlog, right? Uh, we're going to put all this effort into recruiting staff, and we're also going to make sure that that staff which has some limited time in hospitals right now because the capacity has been reduced, can work in private clinics as well so that those surgeries get cleared. Like, why can't both those things happen at once? Because what it does, it sets up a direction of where our healthcare goes. Instead of looking at the fact that we've got public hospitals, we've got surgical beds, we've got equipment there, instead of putting more workers and filling that capacity, which is not at capacity, there's not enough workers to fulfill the demand in the public sector, we're having a parallel system that's just going to hire and pull away workers from the public system. It's not going to net fix the problem, which is not enough healthcare workers. And I want all of our efforts to go towards a solution, which is let's hire more workers. Let's recruit them. Let's retain them. Let's find more trading spaces for them. Let's put all of our energy towards the real problem, which is a shortage of healthcare workers. And in addition, we know that with private delivery, there's costs associated with it. We know there's lower quality. And there's got to be some money baked in for profit, which means all of our money isn't going towards care. All of that is a problem. How do we know it's, it's worse outcomes? How do we know that it's less effective? And I ask because, again, there are already cataract surgeries being performed here and in, uh, here in Ontario and in other provinces, right? There are MRIs. I go to the, go get my lab work done. That's a private for profit clinic. It's still, the results still come back. It's still, you know what I mean? Like it's still helping to alleviate some of those capacity issues. How do you know that that is the case, that things, there will be worse outcomes? And, and how, do you, how are you presenting it as fact? Well, a couple of things we know. First of all, the Ontario Nurses Association and the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, both the frontline healthcare providers have said, this is the wrong approach. It's going to make things worse. So I trust their opinion on this. They're the folks that are delivering the care. We also know logically that when we've got ER rooms that are at capacity and those frontline workers are telling me we don't have enough nurses, if we put more money into a private for-profit delivery, where are those nurses that run those uh, clinics going to come from? Probably the public facility. Or so we could pull... just pay them more through in the public facilities and then they'd go to both. I would say, why don't we just pay our workers more and hire more in the public service and deliver more care? And we know that that's the direction that BC is headed in. BC is actually buying up private clinics because they say it's more efficient, it's better delivery. And we know in terms of the experience But they the let it happen have, in the first place under an NDP government, right? They, they let more, more surgeries, more procedures be delivered through private means, maintaining that they were publicly funded. That's exactly what Ontario is doing. But they're saying that was the wrong direction. And they're acknowledging that they did it, and now they're going in the opposite direction because it's not the best delivery. So they're saying, yeah, we did it, but we realized that wasn't the right way to do it. we got to do it a different way. And that's why they're going towards more public delivery. 
Fundamentally, we know a couple of things when it comes to private care. We know that it costs more. Anytime we look at jurisdictions where there's a public-private mix, it costs more when there's more private. We also know that quality goes down. In long-term cares that are for-profit, we saw the worst quality of care. It gives us an insight into what happens when you've got for-profit. There is a large potential of reducing the quality of care or the hours of care to make more money. And then finally, uh, when we know we're up against a shortage of workers, Having two parallel systems isn't going to solve the worker shortage, and that's fundamentally what we've got to fix. So you're heading for this interview to meet the Prime Minister. Can you explicitly tell Canadians watching tonight what you're going to say on this to the Prime Minister? Are you going to ask, for example, for him to hold back money through the Canada Health Transfer if he determines that the direction of private sector involvement in the public system in a given province is going in the wrong direction? Well, I'm not going to get into the details of this particular meeting, but I can tell Canadians in general what I've said publicly remains the same. I'm opposed to for-profit private delivery. I believe we should be putting our money into public delivery and that there are tools that we can use to discourage for-profit delivery, and that's the Canada Health Act, and we should use that. But what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that the Prime Minister in these negotiations that will commence on February 7th should say, hey, BC, you're going in the right direction, Ontario, you're not, so you're going to get less money? How that's delivered or how that message is conveyed, uh, there's lots of different ways to do it. But ultimately, what I want to see happen is if we've got public money from the federal government going towards solving the healthcare crisis, that money has to go towards the fix, and the fix is hiring more workers. So I want to see our public money going towards fixing the problem and spend it on nurses, spend it on doctors, spend it on healthcare workers. That's what we need to do. The reason I'm asking so, so specifically what, what the line is for you is because it, it appears to me like it's sort of nebulous, right? Like it's sort of slippery. Like is the prime minister the one who's going to stand up there and tell provinces who ultimately have jurisdiction over healthcare that even though you meet the requirements of the Canada Health Act, you're getting a little bit too private for me. Like how do you judge what is too much and how does it not appear arbitrary? Well, we've got a couple of things that we know the Prime Minister has already promised to do. He's promised to hire more doctors and nurses. Do that. That's something he promised to do. We heard the Prime Minister promise to pay healthcare workers more money. Uh, that's something we also agree with. To retain those workers, they need to be compensated appropriately. So let's put our money towards the solutions. Hire more workers and so use that money for... provinces to hire more workers? Because, again, the, the, the federal government is not doing it. The provinces are. Well, the federal government's talked a lot, and the Prime Minister talked a lot about conditions. He touted that I'm not going to give money away without any strings attached. We think one of those strings attached should be ensuring that we're hiring more workers. That seems like a reasonable thing to do if all the healthcare workers in our country are saying we're up against a worker shortage, we're, unable, we're not able to provide the care in emergency rooms because there's not enough people, then we should be using our money towards hiring those people. And, and that's a reasonable they thing. work in public places, not in privately funded clinics? Oh, I absolutely believe we should be spending money, public money, on hiring workers that work in the public sector in a publicly funded universal system. And you think it's the federal government's job to dictate to provinces that that is the case? Well, absolutely. Because Quebec's going to go nuts over that, the, right? The Canada I mean, Health Act says really clearly that we should have a publicly administered healthcare system. And if the problem that we're up against is the lack of healthcare workers, we shouldn't be spending our public money on giving rich corporations more money or private clinics more money that are for profit, we should be spending that on public service for sure. Okay, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. I know you have to run. Thanks a lot, Mr. Thanks Singh. So Appreciate, Appreciate your time. Thank you. That's NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, and the front bench is standing by to weigh in on the politics behind Mr. Singh zoning in on private health care. Up next, though, the list, a roundup of what happened in politics today. More to come on this special edition of Power Play. Stay right there.
Welcome back to Power Play, live from the House of Commons. Lots going on here today, but also a lot of other stuff going on in politics, and I want to get to that right now with the list, a roundup of those stories. First up, days after human rights activist Almira Agabi was appointed Canada's first special representative on combating Islamophobia, the Quebec government is calling for her dismissal. The Legault government is taking issue with comments from a 2019 column she co-authored on Bill 21, Quebec's secularism law, which said Quebecers, quote, appeared to be swayed not by the rule of law, but by anti-Muslim sentiment. El Gawabi clarified her comments in a tweet saying, I don't believe that Quebecers are Islamophobic. My past comments were in reference to a poll on Bill 21. Today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is defending her appointment. Take a listen to those comments. She is there to speak for the community, with the community, and build bridges across. Obviously, she has thought carefully over many years about the impacts uh, that various pieces of legislation, various political positions have had on the community. Her job now is to make sure that she's helping the government and helping everyone move forward. Gymnastics Canada is in support of a judicial inquiry. We never have not been in support of it. We've been in a situation where we've had to take action very quickly because there was no other opportunity for others to be engaged. And that's what we've done. MPs grilled the head of Gymnastics Canada, Ian Moss, this morning at the House's Status of Women Committee. The national organization is under scrutiny after hundreds of former and current gymnasts have asked for an independent investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct as well as physical and verbal abuse in their sport. We hope this will help people feel safer about getting those life-saving services and programs and talking to their friends, talking to their health care provider, and help our health care system in keeping people alive and connected to the health and social supports they need. And finally, a three-year pilot project will launch in British Columbia tomorrow. It will allow simple possession of small drug quantities. Those ages 18 and over will be allowed to carry a combined two and a half grams of opioids, such as heroin, morphine, and fentanyl, as well as cocaine and MDMA, also known as ecstasy. We have a lot more coming up tonight from Parliament Hill, including the front bench. They'll be here to weigh in on the start of things here in the House of Commons. There's Kathleen Monk, Miriam Monsef, Laura Stone, and Melanie Parody. And they'll also weigh in on that private public health care debate. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just a moment here on PowerPoint. The well-connected insiders at McKinsey. How much should the Prime Minister give them? How much? Conservatives continue to push cuts and austerity uh, and uh, not being there for Canadians. This company did money, did work of little or no value according to his own public servants. How much did Canadians have to pay for that? Canadians are struggling right now. Not everybody is doing badly. His friends at McKinsey are rolling in cash. The Conservative leader stands up, crosses his arms, throws up his hands and says everything is broken. Welcome back to Power Play. I'm in the House of Commons tonight, coming to you from the House of Commons, the foyer, actually, because this is the first day back for parliamentarians of 2023 after their winter break. You heard a little bit of the back and forth there. Let's bring in the front bench now to weigh in on the substance as well as the tone and tenor of the politicians all being back here. 
in Ottawa. With me this evening, Miriam Mansa, former Liberal Cabinet Minister and founder of CEO, founder and CEO rather of Onward. Melanie Paradis, former Communications Director to Erin O'Toole and current Texture Communications President. Kathleen Monk is an NDP strategist and Monk and Associates principal owner. And then Laura Stone is a Globe and Mail Queen's Park reporter. Hi, everyone. Good to see you this evening. Appreciate you making the time. Laura, I'm going to start with you. If you had one takeaway from the back and forth during question period today, everyone back back in their seats, what is it? Uh, it's it's on, Bashi. I mean, you know, <laughs> Pierre Polyev came there and he came to, to fight and uh, Trudeau was ready for him. I mean, I think we've seen quite a clash of personalities with these two leaders and it's only going to get bigger and it's only going to get Older. Obviously, the Conservatives are are looking for the next scandal here, and they're they're banking on McKinsey uh, being a big one. We know a committee is looking into that, and I don't think the Liberals seem too concerned with it at this stage. But we'll have to see what comes of it. But obviously, you know, this is going to get very personal between these two leaders. Uh, we've already seen uh, Mr. Polyev repeatedly refer to Mr. Trudeau as Justin during his speeches. Um, you see Mr. Trudeau kind of setting up Mr. Polyev as a, a very negative person, all, all dark and doom, and it's only going to get worse. So I really think, or better, depending on who you talk to, but I really think this <laughs> is uh, going to be a, quite the fight between these two leaders. I think Mr. Trudeau sees a, 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 a formidable foe in Mr. Polyev, and I think it's going to be Quite a battle leading up to the next election. Melanie, I'll get you to weigh in on the same on the same question. What was your impression of how pointed they were at each other? Well, no one can prosecute a liberal scandal quite like Pierre Polyev, so I think he's certainly in in his sweet spot. This is definitely his wheelhouse. But I think that this moment actually reminds me a lot of 2017 and lead up to the Ontario election, uh, where the feeling across Ontario was. People were just sick and tired of liberal scandal after scandal. The gas plant scandal is just one example. Uh, and they were also having a really hard time paying their, their home heating bills, their electricity bills. Costs were, were skyrocketing. And now I think we're seeing the same thing happening now all across Canada where people are having a hard time paying groceries. They're worried about the cost of living. And we have a federal government who just can't stop wasting money on high-powered consultants and who knows what else. And Pierre Polyev's going to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> or he says he will. Kathleen, I think we have Kathleen yes. now. My apologies. Kathleen, can, I, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay, I can hear you perfectly. Sorry about two. that, Bashi. I'm in studio too. I'm not even, it's not even a Zoom <laughs> connection fault, issue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but you yeah, listen, for six weeks of no question period, I agree. I agree with uh, Laura and mm -hmm. Melanie was fiery uh, to watch question period again today. Um, but I think that uh, Pierre Polyev is most successful when he has a scandal to sink his teeth into. And I guess, you know, Santa delivered him this great present over the holidays, and that being the McKinsey scandal. And so he was really great in the House today at framing up the affordability crisis, the pain that all the Canadians are feeling in terms of hiked mortgage rates, you know, in uh, grocery costs, you know, uh, pain at the pumps, and bringing that all back to and why are Liberals spending money on McKinsey. He also did one other thing that was notable today in the House. He is 
intent, as his whole entire caucus is, in as framing the liberals as being long in the tooth. And how he did that was he kept on repeating, for eight years now, this liberal government uh, has been in power. And what's interesting is it actually could kind of disqualify the conservatives on their own math, because, of course, the, cons the liberals have only been in power for seven years and three months. But I guess that's a bit generous on the rounding up. But he's trying to do that. He's trying to paint them as, as old in the tooth or long in the tooth, excuse me, because he wants the next election to be about change. And so his job in the House for this session and in the upcoming sessions until that election uh, writ is dropped is to actually say, these guys have been around for too long. They're too scandal ridden. It's time to choose a different party. Miriam, final word to you on this. Uh, what's your general takeaway from how things transpired? And do you agree with the assessment that like the, the conservatives really want this to be about change and they're going to, and Kathleen, I think, you know, very observantly points out, they, they try to make that point quite off frequently. It's nice to hear you, Kathleen. And I agree uh, with all <laughs> colleagues on this panel. We certainly saw the fireworks to be expected today. We saw the conservatives and the NDP play to their strengths. And, you know, I don't go to question period to figure out where's, where's the government headed. I go to, you know, business of the day and I look at the debates and I geek out over that. And what was good to see was that the government also led with where it strengthens, which was opening with a debate on $10 a day childcare and legislation to guarantee that and where that's an area of strength for the government is on affordability. It's saving families thousands of dollars a year and it will continue to do that. Another area of strength for this is freeing up about a quarter million women to go back into the workforce and to fill labor shortages and to grow the economy. And of course, it's also an area of strength because it creates a political distinction between the liberals and the conservatives. The conservatives have at best been unclear about whether or not they'll support this program moving into the future. And at worst have signaled that they will tear up the agreements as they did back in 2006. So definitely the fireworks to be expected. Uh, and I think this isn't gonna be the last we hear of this approach moving forward into this session. Yeah, lots of different distinctions. I think I think the conservatives at times, maybe under this leader, have talked about a tax credit, but I, I take your point on the sort of framing of the debate. We're going to talk more about the substance behind what we heard today in the House of Commons on the other end of a quick break here on Power Play with the front bench. They're sticking around. Hope you do too. Stay right there. My concern is about uh, for-profit private delivery everywhere in our country. So you're worried about what Quebec's doing too? Absolutely. I'm worried about it happening anywhere in the country. And I'm particularly worried about the crisis that we're in right now and the decisions we make right now with our public dollars at the federal level. That's Jagmeet Singh from earlier on the program. I'm Vashi Capellos coming to you uh, from the House of Commons tonight because Parliament has resumed for 2023. I want to bring back the front bench to talk a little bit about what, what Mr. Singh is saying there with me this evening. Miriam Monsef, Melanie Paradis, Kathleen Monk, and Laura Stone. Kathleen, I'm going to start with you. Let me just ask you a bit about politics here. What is the opening that Jagmeet Singh sees on private health care? Because, yes, the, the, the Liberal position has changed uh, from where it was in mm -hmm. 2021 during the election, uh, but... Uh, they seem to have read as one room, and, and he's, is he reading a different room? Like, what's happening? 
Yeah, he's seeing the a vast majority of Canadians out there who are concerned about our health care system, but who also want a full-throated defense of our universal public uh, non-profit health care system. And so that's the audience he's speaking to that those are the voters and Canadians he's speaking to he knows that a lot of Canadians are concerned about moving to a for-profit private system and there's lots of reasons for that right we, we've seen for years um, you know calls for change in our system listen it's no surprise our system is broken it needs to change but we have libraries full of papers and royal commissions that have told us we need to change but what kind of change not private for-profit is what New Democrats would say and why because we've seen the results of that I, I saw your interview earlier with Mr. Singh, and I would just say there's some more facts that we could be brought to the table. Like we've seen private experiments in Saskatchewan, for instance, with MRI clinics, for instance, that over the last few years have doubled. In four years, they've doubled the waiting list, and they're private for-profit clinics. So that's not a successful experiment. Same thing in the UK, in the United Kingdom, when they outsourced a lot of private surgeries, they found a higher mortality rate. Where was that published? In the Lancet. I mean, the facts are out there that Private for-profit delivery doesn't always have the best outcomes. We saw that in Ontario in long-term care. So I think real questions about what system, what change we want to move to should be asked. And I think what Mr. Singh is trying to say yeah. and then trying to appeal to Canadians is those people want that public non-profit system. And, and I do understand asking the questions, uh, Miriam, but is it a bit of political, is it a bit politically risky for Mr. Singh, for example, to pick a fight with Quebec, which is also moving down that road. It's one thing to pick a fight with the Doug Fords of, of Canada, for example, but is it politically risky to, to, to wade into some, what, what many would argue is purely provincial jurisdiction? Well, healthcare is an issue of grave concern to all Canadians, particularly post-pandemic or post-start of the pandemic. So I think Mr. Singh is doing exactly what he should be doing. He, uh, you know, I will say where I philosophically agree with him. We absolutely do need to protect the principles within the Canada Health Act. We absolutely do need to ensure that that single payer system is protected. And for me, as I have seen, as we all have, the women in the sector carry all of us throughout the pandemic, be paid well, be supported well, be respected, has to be a key priority. Where I'm a little confused with Mr. Singh's approach is these conversations didn't start over Christmas. They didn't start last year. In fact, they started to build momentum last year. So if he wanted to be a constructive uh, component to this debate, he would have started a little bit earlier. And that he's coming into this conversation a week before the prime minister set to meet with the premiers makes me question, is he trying to uh, shape the debate? Or is he looking for relevance? And he would, of course, be excused if he's looking for relevance because that is the job of an opposition leader and someone right. who's holding together a, a government in a minority situation. He, he also, though, has, I mean, as to the question of why now, uh, Melanie, I mean, he has Doug Ford coming out with this proposal. And Doug Ford is uh, like a, an obvious political foe for him. Sure, but I mean, Doug Ford's coloring inside the lines on this. I mean, he's not doing anything that isn't already in, in, in motion and in practice across Ontario. He's just doing more of it. So none of this is particularly new. You already could have surgeries at private clinics before. Um, now there's just going to be more of them. But why, why is he doing this now? I mean, I think that's, a, that's, that's the question of the hour. 
He here's a politician who has had a deal with the Liberal government for the past year. We're coming up on a year uh, of the confidence and supply agreement that, that the NDP has with the Liberals. He could have talked to Justin Trudeau about this at any point in time in the past year to say, "Hey, what's going on with healthcare? Maybe we should uh, maybe we should have a serious conversation about about making sure that that we maintain universal healthcare across Canada." And he never at any point has has raised this. And so Jagmeet Singh is always he's permanently late to the party. And it's painful. It's painful to watch. I gotta jump uh, Laura, in there. I'll, I'll, just ask you, I'll jump. I'll jump in for a second. No, no, Laura. I, because this is my this is my sort of count. You know, minor counter to that. If you do read what the prime minister and his party said in the last election against the the man you advised, Aaron O'Toole, they were pretty unequivocal actually about the same things that Jagmeet Singh is saying now. They are the ones who have really changed their position, and it's. Maybe perhaps, Laura, uh, to play devil's advocate, the fact that the prime minister in that interview with the star characterized what Doug Ford was doing as innovation versus how he characterized what Aaron O'Toole pitched as something very different a year and a half ago. At the same time, like there's obviously some political opportunism here. Yeah, and I mean, it, it depends on which audience they're speaking to. Uh, Mr. Trudeau is speaking to uh, a pool of voters here in Ontario that also who also voted for Doug Ford. So I think there's some kind of political tiptoeing going on. I will say, I believe that the, the difference is, you know, one was paying out of pocket and and if Ontario is to be believed, as Mr. Ford has repeatedly said, um, the changes here will not require out of pocket. It will still be color, covered by OHIP, but they will be delivered by private services. And of course, Mr. Singh is talking about a slippery slope and he's talking about rebuilding the public system as opposed to going this route and you know the jury is kind of out on whether this will work but um miss monsef used the term relevance and i do think that mr singh is looking for uh, relevance here and a political win and he does see this as an opportunity and he's a politician and that's what politicians do so so that's okay but he is looking at this meeting coming up with the premiers and the prime minister and that's going to be uh you know if not announced next week, it's probably going to be announced shortly thereafter that the government is going to inject billions of dollars into the healthcare systems. And that will, um, you know, right. be good news for, for the prime minister and premiers and people across the country. So I think Mr. Singh is looking here for an avenue where he can claim a win. And if you look at what he's asking for, he's saying, um, you know, we want, we need to guarantee that they hire more healthcare workers. Well, I'm pretty sure that whatever the premiers and prime minister come up with will be a promise to, to, to bolster the, the healthcare, healthcare workforce. Yeah. So, so <laughs> okay. I think he'll, he's asking I, I for something a, that would likely come to fruition. What he wishes for may actually happen. Okay, I got to leave it there. I'm sure we'll be talking about this for weeks to come. Thanks so much to our front bench panel tonight. Kathleen Monk, Miriam Monsef, Melanie Parody, and Laura Stone. Today's takeaway is actually, in fact, on this very subject. Have a listen to House Leader Mark Holland when I asked him if the feds were willing to hold back money on this very issue. We are in negotiations right now with the provinces and have been clear in those negotiations the primacy of, of public health care. And we've also been clear uh, then and now that if provinces move away from the public delivery of health care, there will be consequences for that. And there are mechanisms, uh, including the potential, uh, the potential of withholding funds um, that are available to us. There you have it, Government House Leader Mark Collins saying there is the potential that the federal government could withhold funds from the provinces in whatever transpires at that meeting. 
with the premiers or whatever agreement transpires based on the prevalence of the private sector in public health care. We'll have to see exactly what those, that means rather through those negotiations. I will leave it there for tonight, though. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for watching a special edition of Power Play. I'll turn things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great evening.